Hello, and welcome to the Neo Chinese Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Nieres, aka the Mandarin. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about foreign comrades. As you might already know, the main topic of this podcast is Neo Chinese people. If you don't know what the definition of Neo Chinese people is, then I wouldn't be surprised about that. It's actually a neologism or a new word that I invented to define the interesting phenomenon that is found in the Chinese-speaking world, in which you have people that have a bicultural background or a multicultural background within the Chinese-speaking community, but who are often regarded as foreigners. So in the in the first part of this podcast, I'm going to be talking about the history of my people, the history of Neo Chinese people, people who have been either born and or raised in China and who identify themselves as solely Chinese or Taiwanese or as a Hong Kong person, and who also identify themselves with another culture. Let it be from India, Nepal. The United States, Canada, and so forth. So let's begin. Part one: Foreign Comrades into Mao's China. Without a doubt, the Chinese Communist Party's victory in the Chinese Civil War in 1949 dramatically changed the social structure of the people who inhabited the newly formed People's Republic of China. And the reason for this, just to give a little historical background, all of these people were. Brought to complete turmoil and uncertainty with the fall of the Qing Empire after the Xinhai Gaming or the Xinhai Revolution in 1911, and with the subsequent establishment of the Republic of China. After this, the Republic of China was unable to consolidate power over the entire territory of China. Uh, bringing China to a period of political instability, in which local warlords controlled different parts of the of the Republic of China, oppressing the common people or the citizens of the Republic of China. So, with this historical background、uh, and with the general dissatisfaction that many citizens of the Republic of China had towards the newly formed government,、uh, many people in China turned their eyes to Russia, and they noticed that Russia. Was able, unlike China, they were able to they were able to establish this industrial powerhouse after eradicating imperialist rule in Russia and liberating Russia from the shackles of Western imperialist powers. After that, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, there was a wave of Chinese revolutionary thinkers who began the May Fourth Movement in 1919, which, in extension, initiated a large series of conflicts that lasted from 1919 all the way up to 1949, which also resulted in the government of the Republic of China re- relocating to the to modern-day Taiwan after it lost the Chinese Civil War, which also resulted in the establishment of the People's Republic of China in modern-day mainland China. And just a little recap: what we know as, or what we call the Republic of China, is what we now often know as Taiwan, or the, which is officially known as the Republic of China. And the People's Republic of China is the large global superpower that is currently ruled by the Chinese Communist Party in mainland China, which is also known as the PRC. I guess it's really confusing for a lot of people since both the official names of both countries has China in them, but they're both different governments. So the question is though, after explaining this whole 
After spending so much time explaining this whole historical background, how do Westerners or Neo-Chinese people or the or foreigners in China fall into this historical context? So, according to an interview recorded in the book written by the famous sinologist Beverly Hooper, entitled "Foreigners Under Mao," she interviewed a 93-year-old Canadian called Isabel Crook, who also lived in the People's Republic of China for many years. When she recalled how she felt during all of the years of reform under Mao China, she said that many foreigners like her wanted to be participants, not observers. I think that this statement summarizes very well the status quo which Westerners found themselves in after the establishment of the PRC, and this was especially the case after Chairman Mao delivered a famous speech. In May second, nineteen forty-two, during the Civil War, during this speech, he pronounced this, the following famous quote in Mandarin Chinese: "Gu wei jin yong, yang wei zhong yong," which can be loosely translated as "We must make the past serve the present, and make the foreign serve China." And what's really interesting about these words is that Chairman Mao pronounced these words before a group of liberalists. And separatist experts of literature and arts in China to remind them of what the newly formed People's Republic of China thought about their position in society, and in a way, these words also define the position that Westerners would be forced to live into in the following years as foreign comrades who were allowed to live in China in exchange of the talents that they could offer to the newly formed central government in Beijing. Now, as for the identities and roles that Westerners served in Chinese society under Mao China, I think that another Westerner who lived during that time, named Pat Adler, who commented in the same book mentioned earlier in this episode, he said, "I've lived here for almost fifty years. China's my home, but I'm still British." I think that this comment made by him from the By someone from the UK clearly illustrates the complex cultural identity and the roles that Westerners played in society in Mao China. Something that we also have to understand, as I mentioned earlier, is that under the official rationale that Westerners were different and were not accustomed to China's supposedly low living standards, the PRC government enforced what might be called privileged segregation. What this means is that Westerners employed by the government were paid higher salaries than their Chinese counterparts, as well as being provided with superior accommodation, dining, and other facilities. And this preferential treatment was actually called tuchun or formal privileges that were granted to non-Chinese citizens at that time. And I think that most historians would probably call it yodai, which is preferential treatment, special consideration, or in other words. They were given a special treatment. For instance, many of the foreign experts in the Foreign Experts Bureau received incomes which averaged between 400 to 600 Chinese yuan, which were five or more times than what a Chinese professional would earn at that time. And there are also reports that when a famous foreign expert at the time, Sidney Shapiro, refused to take more than 300 of his 440 Chinese yuan. Um, the local Chinese authorities even offered to put the difference into a special account for him, and as I mentioned earlier, all, all this 
preferential treatment actually came with a cost. Like I mentioned earlier with the Yang Wei Zhongyong policy or the policy in which the Chinese government thought that anything foreign was to serve China at that time. So some of, the, some of these foreign experts wanted to fully integrate to Chinese society, but their social mobility within Chinese society was, was intricately planned and limited by the central government in Beijing. And they were only assigned and allowed to do jobs that were considered to be unsuitable for Chinese people, such as translation, editing, writing, as well as teaching Chinese people how the so-called uh, or like the world outside of, the, of their country was like in order to cultivate future Chinese experts of foreign affairs. Now, as to the interactions that the early members of the neo-Chinese community had in China, in spite of having limited social, social mobility within the Chinese society and being forced to live a bourgeois lifestyle within the confines of the artificial space that the, new, newly, that the newly established Chinese government had created for foreigners in China, that this did not stop the foreign community to evolve and change just as other communities were evolving and changing in other countries around the world as the world slowly marched its way towards the early stages of awakening to an era of globalization. However, unlike other countries around the world, according to several personal memoirs recorded in Beverly Hooper's book which I mentioned earlier, Foreigners Under Mao, the members of the foreign community in China were not legally impeded from becoming Chinese citizens, but they were discouraged from becoming naturalized as citizens of the People's Republic of China due to their role as foreign propaganda mouthpieces of the PRC to the outside world. And this is a diplomatic tactic that is still being used in the People's Republic of China, in Taiwan, and previously in Hong Kong. However, at, a, at, an, at the everyday level though, language was actually the real important marker of personal identity within the foreign community in China. It wasn't citizenship, even though they were not impeded to become citizens and they were discouraged um, from becoming Chinese citizens, the real social marker within that community, within our community, is how well you can speak Chinese, which can facilitate or impede social integration. And this is a very common feature among immigrant and exile communities around the world. And the foreign community in China is not the exception. And something that is that should be noted according to many records is that while the majority of the, the early members of the foreign community in Mao China were eventually able to master Chinese to varying degrees, their inability to read Chinese created a sense of psychological and emotional distance to the everyday events of Mao China. Now, in contrast though, um, talking about the interactions that this community had with people within society in Mao China, the children of these long-term residents in Mao China were more sinicized or more Chinese than their parents, so to speak. Because most of them grew up speaking Chinese as their first language. While their parents were busy working or doing political study, many of these children grew up in a Chinese daycare or were looked after by a Chinese-speaking nanny or babysitter. And this is really interesting because I, th I feel that a lot of people often assume for some reason that many kids who grew up in China within 
a, uh, in a foreign family or what is known as a foreign family um, don't grow up speaking Chinese when that's actually when it's it, when that's actually not the case. They, many of these kids, including myself, have grown up speaking both languages fluently and uh, identify them. Uh, we are we identify ourselves with both identities. And according to many reports, um, the, these families of immigrants and children of immigrants who had moved and settled into Mao China often considered themselves to be Chinese, while also being aware while also being aware that they were often not viewed as such in Mao China. Michael Crook, who is also mentioned in Beverly Hooper's book, who grew up in China and was the son of a Canadian foreign expert in China recalls that so-called second-generation neo-Chinese people like him were often not conscious of their foreignness in school, who, where other Chinese people saw them as equals, which means that they saw them as, as one of their own, because they, they thought they've, 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 they had seen them either, they knew that they were either born and or raised in China, so they saw them as Chinese people. But according to what Michael Crook said in the book that I mentioned earlier, if any neo, if any second generation neo Chinese people went to another part, another part of town, people would gather and stare at them, and would also call them Yanggui, like a, a foreign devil, because they thought that they were different. But what's really ironic, though, is that he also reports that he felt the same way towards foreigners. Um, and by foreigners, I mean people who did not identify themselves as Chinese or, and who were not born in China and had no personal connection to the Chinese culture or the Chinese language. So he says that every time he bumped into someone who was considered to be foreign or to be a foreigner, even though he looked like a foreigner and some people saw him as a foreigner, he felt the same fear that many Chinese people had towards foreigners because he could not speak what he called or foreign speak. And this whole identity issue and interactions with, uh, within the Chinese society under Mao China, um, especially among the second generation of new Chinese people, was even more complex for children who had a Chinese mother or father, and who even up to this day are labeled as Huanxiar or Huanxie in, in Mandarin, which means mixed blood children or children of mixed blood. It's sounds horrible but that's actually how a lot of these uh, a lot of these people are called so this group of people within the chinese speaking world have frequently been a target of condescending comments violent attacks social rejection and ranging all the way to deep admiration or even fiery jealousy from both chinese people and foreigners alike and unlike other places around the world where people were encouraged to embrace their dual or multicultural backgrounds, the Chinese government encouraged people to draw a clear line between the so-called foreigners and Chinese people. So, second-generation neo-Chinese people, second-generation neo-Chinese people who were labeled as mixed-blood children were often encouraged by their parents to only choose one side of their cultural identity out of the fear of their children being othered or persecuted for being different in school or in different areas of society. And this resulted in some of 
this resulted in some early members of the neo-Chinese community growing up identifying themselves as Chinese and only Chinese instead of having a bicultural or dual identity due to the heavy political climate that discouraged multicultural identities and encouraged nationalism during Mao China. Now, at a personal level or at an individual level, many of these early members of the neo-Chinese community suffered a large degree of emotional trauma during their childhood, which resulted in serious mental problems in some of these neo-Chinese people. One of these cases was the Yang family, a beautiful family made up of a British mother, a Chinese father, two daughters, and one son. So the daughters admit that they were forced to unwillingly forsake their dual identity and choose to identify themselves as Chinese because of the strong political environment and social pressures that forced people to either identify as a foreigner or as a Chinese person. It was like you either had to choose one. You couldn't choose to be both at that time. You could only be a foreigner or a Chinese person, unlike back in the United States where people were at that time starting to create this notion of uh, being Chinese American or African American instead of being just called Oriental or Negro, um, which was the term that was used very often unjustly and discriminately against these two groups in the United States. Now, in contrast, though, in China at that time, you had to choose between either being a foreigner or a Chinese person. And this caused a large amount of trauma to their brother, Yang Ye. And sadly, he did not enjoy the same fate as their sisters. He was often subjected to a large amount of social pressure due to his mixed Chinese foreign parentage. And according to reports of people who visited the Yang family in the mid-1960s, Yang Ye never seemed to come to terms with his bicultural identity and went from denying his foreign identity to denying his Chinese identity from time to time. And he even went to the point of denying that he either had a Chinese father or a British mother from time to time as well. In the end, the political pressures and racial segregation between the so-called foreigners and Chinese people during the Mao era led to a horrible tragedy. Yang Ye's father later made a small memoir of what happened. Four years later, after the aforementioned reports were made by the people who visited their apartment in the mid-1960s. So this is what, this is what he wrote. At Christmas, Gladys' sister was invited to go away. She left him, Yang Ye, alone in the house, unaware of what was going to happen. He bought a can of petrol, which he set alight in his room, setting the house on fire and causing serious damage. He himself was burned to death. Yang Ye's father and mother later reported that their, that their son's death was the most tragic and crippling blow of their lives. But the real question is, how different would Yang Ye's life had been if the Chinese government had never drawn such a clear line between the so-called foreigners and Chinese people and had allowed all kinds of people to integrate into society in an equal manner, regardless of their ethnicity? All I can say is that as a neo-Chinese person myself, I have experienced the same social pressures that come from both the Western world and the Chinese-speaking world. 
Neo-Chinese people like us and our foreign parents are often given preferential treatment or, or are given a special treatment, which has created industries within the Chinese-speaking world which limit our social mobility and our employment opportunities within the Chinese-speaking world, which is really unfair because oftentimes the Chinese government or the Taiwanese government or any other governments within the Chinese-speaking world try to apply these unfair social rules, laws, and regulations that do not promote equal job access for people of all ethnicities within the Chinese-speaking world, including supposedly democratic societies like Taiwan. Guess that's my analysis of this first episode of the history of my people. There aren't many people out there talking about the history of my people from this perspective. And I really hope that pe that more people will be able to listen to our story. Our stories have not been heard and have been silenced for a long time. And I think that this is the time for us to stop the social pressures that led to, or end the political nonsense that led to the end of, that led Yang Ye to kill himself, and that has led many neo-Chinese people to develop serious mental issues because we're denied our cultural identities. I guess that's everything for today's episode. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about a different group of foreigners that lived during, during the Mao era and what connection they have with neo-Chinese people today and how this affects you if you're living in the Chinese-speaking world. And also, if you're interested in listening to more stories about the issues and inequalities that many people within the Chinese-speaking world are currently suffering and how we are overcoming these issues, um, you can listen to my other podcasts called Modern Love in Asia and Mixed Feelings, which are both available in English and Mandarin. All right, so that's everything for today. And see you next time in our next episode of the Neo-Chinese Podcast. Thank you for listening.